Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I want to I want to uh, start the talk with a contemporary prayer that uh, perhaps some of you have heard. I was first turned on to this prayer from uh, by my good friend Howie Cohn, and it has since made it to greeting card status. I found it in a store. I don't know if he started it, but uh, here it is. <clears throat> Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm probably going to need all the help I can get. Amen. This process is humbling, if you haven't noticed yet. Because <clears throat> as you're, we're all learning to open up to the whole show, then part of the deal is you get to see all the stuff that we usually distract ourselves from. If you're relatively new, maybe you're seeing things for the first time and saying, oh my goodness, what is in there? Or maybe you're sitting with stuff that you've known all too well, but you're sitting with it perhaps for the first time or in a new way. <clears throat> and, uh, and so the question can come, you know, why, why do we do this? And if you're experienced, if you've done eight three-month retreats in uh, a moldy oldie from veterans of foreign wars, you know, it's also humbling. In some ways, it's even more humbling because the thought comes, I can't believe I still get stuck. I can't, I can't believe I'm in this place again. I've done months and years of practice. When he gave a hindrance talk the other night, and probably a few were saying, oh yeah, I know, oh here's a hindrance talk, I know hindrance talk. And maybe you've heard 200 hindrance talks, and then you get caught in the hindrances, and you say, I'm here again, how did that happen? And then you Maybe you realize, you remember the, the teaching of the second dart. Maybe quite a few of you are familiar with that. The second dart is, okay, something is hard, you know, whether it's physical or, or mental, it's hard. That's bad enough. But then when you say, oh, I, I'm so pathetic for being caught in here in this one, and you start judging yourself, <clears throat> judging yourself that's the second dart. And you might be very familiar with the second dark teaching. And you say, oh, 
I got it. It's just the second dart. All right, I see it clearly now. Oh my God, I'm still here. Why? Okay, just be mindful. I'll just be mindful. I'll open up to it with a kind awareness. I'm still here. I'm still stuck. And then you have maybe a, a multiple hindrance attack. And then maybe it turns into a complete meltdown. And then where it's really humbling is then you see your name scheduled for an interview. Oh my God. Here I am. I've been practicing for 15 years and I'm having a meltdown and I'm going to be seen. Oh my goodness. So... I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but um, it's one that's not uncommon at all. To be humbled, either by this practice as we're doing it here, or to be humbled in life. I know what it's like to be humbled. And it's not just, you know, oh yes, in my earlier years when I was practicing, I remember being humbled. And I know what it's like to be humbled not so long ago. Uh, not today, thank goodness, but uh, it's part of being human. I want to talk tonight about um, humility and confidence and really how they, they go together. Being humbled can lead in two different directions. It can lead to humiliation and going down on your knees and where you're struggling and you're contracted and you're maybe ashamed of being in that place. That's where it goes to the the meltdown. Or it can lead, and I think eventually it leads, even those who go that route for a while, to um, true humility, which is a very profound, wholesome, an important place to touch in our hearts and in our practice. With humility, you're stopping the struggle. You're surrendering. You're letting go. There's a release. And you open up your you open yourself up to something much more than you can figure out. And what's the difference between those two, between meltdown, down on your knees, humiliation, and a a deep, profound humility? Well, perhaps you can get a sense in your own practice that when 
you let go of thinking that you're running the show, then something quite extraordinary happens. When you let go of that idea of me and I should be different than I am and why am I doing getting caught in this and how can I figure out how to get out of it, all of that just creates more struggle and contraction because you can hear all the eyes involved. And I have seen myself in recent years that being humbled every now and then, I'd say that's probably the best if you're fortunate enough on your karmic unfolding, being humbled every now and then is actually a good thing. If it's, if it's a chronic humbled, then it's kind of difficult to deal with. But as soon as you think you've got it figured out, the universe is going to come over and just bop you on the head and say, oh yeah, you think so? And if we can really um, accept and welcome that, and see, this is okay, this is just part of being human, then it mitigates any tendency towards hubris or arrogance that, that we might have. And it connects us with all of humanity. There's a real relief to knowing that you don't have to keep it all together. And as I've said many times, you know, if, if the button gets pressed in the right way, I can be back in the third grade in no time at all. But what has happened, and I think what happens for, for people who've been practicing as sincerely as most of us, is you start seeing that there's another way to hold it. And you don't get lost for quite as long. And maybe the time lag shortens and shortens. There's a, a saying that I, I love in, uh, it's in the Hindu tradition. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Kind of allows you to cut some slack for yourself. You know? It's just one thought away getting lost in your story of who I am or who I should be or who I want to be or who I'm not. And we've all seen this with wise teachers, whether it's Roshis or Rinpoches or Bhagwans or great masters who seem to at times have this incredible channel for deep wisdom that, that touches so many and then they get lost. That's it's a real lesson and a real gift for all of us that until we're fully cooked, until we are fully awakened, just one thought away 
identifying with experience. The good news is no matter how lost you go, you can get, no matter what depths that you've gone to, what hell realms, what fears or, or panics, it's just one thought away seeing it from a clear, wise perspective. Isn't that wonderful? So I kind of see it as a, a binary function of practice. We're either here or we're lost. And when we get lost, all we have to do is remember to come back to here again. You don't need 10 years more of practice. You don't need to, you know, work on all your calaces and really try hard. All of that stuff is quite good. But once you've seen through the emptiness of the mental fabrications, and that's an incredible gift, once you've seen your thoughts are as real as you believe them to be or as empty as you see them to be, once you've seen that, even gotten a taste of it, even gotten just a glimpse of it, there is a way through. Because then it's just remembering not to believe your thoughts. Not so easy, but it's possible. That's what we're here for. That's what we're practicing. That's what we're cultivating. Seeing reality beyond our own concepts or ideas of what we think reality should be or how it is. Here's a here's a, an instruction I, I, I often give on retreats from uh, from Joseph Goldstein. It's one of my favorite instructions that he gives. He says, if you're having a hard time with your mind and your thoughts are really bothering you, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just looked around the spot. <laughs> it's so free for all intents and purposes. You know, who knows how those thoughts got into your mind? You know, do you say I could go for some rage right now? You know? It just comes. How about some doubt? I could go for a real good bout of doubt. It just comes all by itself, and it's so incredibly freeing to realize that you have no control over your mind. You might say, oh my God, that's kind of depressing. I, the way I see it anyway, others might see it differently. You, at any one moment, you have no, really no control over what comes through your mind. If you did, you'd only have wonderful, loving thoughts of saving humanity, right? But a few others seem to slip through. But to, when, I, when, I, when I really came to understand that, it was so incredibly freeing because then I didn't have to blame myself for what came through. And the, the corollary to that is um, watch out for taking credit for what comes through. Hey, that was a pretty neat thought. Check it out. Because that's just one little 
step down a slippery slope of taking responsibility for those thoughts that come through. So with all of these Roshis and Rinpoches and Bhagavans and even the Buddha who was visited by Mara not only before he was enlightened, but after he was enlightened, there's a whole section in the Samyutta Nikaya of oh, maybe 20 or 30 incidences where Mara comes to visit the Buddha and Mara says, you, know, you call yourself a renunciate? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? you know? And then the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And Mara kind of slinks away. If Mara can come and visit the Buddha, Cut yourself a little slack. Right? So rather than thinking, I, when am I going to get it all together? It's like at times you're not in the way and clarity comes right through you and love shines right through you because that's who you really are when it's not, not obscured and awareness sees things clearly. And then at other times you get confused and believe our thoughts and get humbled. How do I humble myself? Let me count the ways. So many different ways that our patterns can get contracted. We might have all kinds of ideas or expectations. Oh, I'm a, you know, if I'm really doing it right, I'd be a hindrance-free yogi. Just notice any kind of ideal that you might have. I, I remember on, on one retreat, I was, I was sitting and everybody around me was emoting so much, going through tissues and just really what I thought was deep catharsis. Right? And I was just sitting there watching my breath, you know, and I thought, they're really getting their money's worth. <laughs> I'm just here flat as a pancake and not much is happening. And I went to Joseph saying, you know, what's going on? I, I, I just, maybe I'm just not in touch with my feelings. I, I maybe I'm just living in denial. Really? He, I remember this really. He said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough. <laughs> And it did, you know, in its own way. Somebody can be going through the tissues and say, oh, what a pathetic case I am here. You know, why can't I get it together and just be with the breath, know that I'm sitting? And in the meantime, they can be touching places of deep opening and releasing years' worth of either trauma or confusion or knots that open themselves to uh, not only clarity but a deep compassion that will serve others. So you might just notice if expectations or the comparing mind comes into play. Either comparing with others around you or comparing against your last practice period where it was just humming along. 
So that's one way. Expectations, ideas, how it should be going. Another common way we go, we get humbled and go through our our challenges is uh, a natural part of the practice is we start remembering our past. All the things that we've done in our past. Usually we remember the things that we wish we didn't remember. It's not so often that we remember all the beautiful, noble things. That's kind of, okay, well, that's the way I'm supposed to be in the world. But, oh, God, God, I did that. I've shared this on other retreats. The first time I did a loving-kindness retreat, uh, full-on loving-kindness for intensive practice over a a couple of weeks, and, um, you know, there I was kind of wishing... May I be safe from harm, may I be happy, may I be healthy. And I thought of just all these awful things that I did in my life. It was, it was, it was really humbling, very, really humbling. And I just go, oh no, I can't believe I did that. Oh no. It was like one after another. It was, it was so bad at some point I decided, okay, I'm going to list the 20 really awful things that I've done in my life. I was so lucky I picked that number. I only got up to 17 <laughs> really bad ones. Now is your mind saying, oh, I wonder what they were. <laughs> I mean, I didn't kill anybody or, you know, just, but just inside that I'd say, ooh, that. Oh, I did that. Oh, what was I thinking when I did that? So if you have that come up, and it's quite natural that your whole life plays in front of you, um, and you're finding yourself cringing, cringing, which is a form of being humbled, is actually a really good sign even though it's painful, it's like acknowledging you're a different person than when you did that. If you didn't cringe and you said, oh yeah, that's what people do, next time, then you're not probably learning much and you'll probably be doing it again. But to have that, what's called um, wise remorse or or moral shame and moral dread. Those are wholesome states where you say, oh, that doesn't feel good and you can't pretend anymore that it's okay. This is a good sign. It's a, it's a healthy kind of humbling. The Buddha talked about this in, in, in one discourse that I love where he says, you know, just see what your actions lead to. If you can, if you can before... You act just to see, just get clear. Is this going to lead to suffering or happiness, my own or others? And if you see it's going to lead to suffering and you don't want to suffer, then don't do it. And he says, you might not realize until you're in the middle of the action of the words. He says, if you can, just pause and reflect. Where is this leading? To more harm or 
and suffering or more happiness and act accordingly. And then he says, you might not realize until after the deed has been done or the words have been spoken, it's not too late. He doesn't say, go ahead and now beat yourself up and feel guilty for the next 10 years. He says, just reflect. What can I learn from this? If there's some, some way to share with somebody and, and, and get a clarity of reflection, then do that or make amends. But in the very least, see what can I learn? How can I use this as a springboard to greater understanding and compassion and, and clean up my act? It's never too late. And one of the things that, that happens in this is that in this process is the more you're willing to, to see, the more you're willing to look and be here for everything, the more you will see. There's a, it's a kind of purification process. There's a... Um, a line uh, from Be Here Now, <clears throat> Ram Dass says, as you, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates are very fierce, but as you go deeper into the truth, the light is brighter too. So this is a natural kind of a process. And it's very important to somehow learn to deal with all of those memories and regrets and, and guilt if it comes up. Because you've got two choices. Either keep on pressing the guilt button or somehow transmute that into something beautiful and meaningful. I love that line. It says, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. So that's another way that we can humble ourselves. Another way that we get humbled and learn true humility is um, through our fears. And fear is a very natural part of this process because we are willing to explore new territory. And so anytime you're moving from the familiar and the known to getting out of your comfort zone, it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's okay. That's a good sign. And learning to see fear as an ally. It's a kind of indication that you're stretching yourself. I, I love Jack's definition of fear. He's saying, it's really saying about to grow. Fear is saying about to grow. And so it really becomes a, a, an ally for you. If it's not, then it's a very heavy-duty enemy because what it does is orient ourselves 
to a particular focus. And we, that becomes the only thing in our mind when we become completely overwhelmed with fear. I got in touch last year with a memory I hadn't remembered in years. I think I might have mentioned it last, last year's retreat. I had just thought about it. When I was young, uh, I was um, learning to ride a bicycle. And you, know, you remember that magic day when the training wheels come off? And there you are going for the first time on your own. <clears throat> well, this one day, it's a Sunday, my dad was teaching me, and we were on our block in Elmhurst, Queens, Hampton Street, and there it was. There was nobody around on that block, as far as I could see. Um, and... Here it was, and he started running. He said, okay, there you go. And there I was off down the street. But I hadn't quite gotten putting on the brakes so well. That was, I hadn't mastered that, which is a very important thing when you're, if you're teaching a kid to ride a bike. And there I was driving down, riding down the block, and then way in the distance, I could see a whole group of people standing. And then as I got closer, I saw not only was it a group of, of older people, there was a man with a baby carriage. Yeah. And I see that, and I say, don't hit the baby carriage. Don't hit the baby carriage. It was the only thing in my reality. Don't hit the baby carriage. And it was like radar. I hit the baby carriage. Did. And I, I didn't ride for about like a, a couple of years. I was like, I didn't want to go near a bicycle. That's how fear works. When you say, oh my goodness, I hope this doesn't happen. It's like that's the only reality that you, that you have as you obsess about it. And your contraction around it is the very thing that gets you out of rhythm to just being with things in a more wise and clear way. And often, as we, as we know, the fear of what's going to happen is usually much worse than what actually happens. Because when it does, we're usually able to deal with it. But if we live in fear, we are continually perpetuating a, a nightmare. As Joseph says, one of, another one of my favorite lines, anything can happen at any time. That's just the way things are. Anything can happen at any time. Now you can use that line and get completely freaked out. Or you can use it and say, it's beyond my control. What if I just live my life? and not live in what might happen. Things change. Anything can happen at any time. I, I did one retreat where I was... Um, I was 
continually getting lost in this yo-yo of practice where I'd get concentrated and then I'd get re- feel like it was really just happening and all right, now I'm on cruise control, you know, and then I'd kind of lose it and I'd get exhausted and then I'd get confused and I'd go into despair and then I'd hit the bottom of despair and I'd give up and then all of a sudden I'd get concentrated again and it was like, I was going up and down like that. It was really exhausting. And I remember writing this note. I tacked it up to my wall, taped it up to my wall. When the thought, it's happening, comes, watch out. And then underneath, when the thought, nothing is happening, comes, watch out. Because that's the one thing you can be sure of, that things will change. You can live in fear of this, or you can open up and not only accept, but embrace it. This is what the Buddha said in his encouragement to reflect every day on how impermanence works. This body is not beyond old age. I will grow old. This body is not beyond sickness. I will become sick. This body is not beyond death. I will die. Everything and everyone near and dear to me I'll be separated from. And I am the owner of my karma and my actions. So think about this every day. Not to bum yourself out, but just to know this is part of the deal. Here's a a beautiful, uh, I don't know about beautiful, this is a profound poem for me by uh, Joyce Wellwood. The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So we can let our fears run us, 
or we can just open up to the fact everything is out of our control. And in that true humility, there is a kind of opening to reality. In that truly letting go of control, we give up running the show. There's a, a beautiful line by um, Wei Wu Wei, this very profound Dharma wise person, who says, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. That's, that's where you're really getting to humility. The humility of completely letting go of the idea that you're running things. The good news in being humbled is that it leads to something very profound and unshakable. And that is, it leads to genuine confidence. Confidence, trust, faith. When you're letting go of the control that you never had in the first place, you can surrender to something much faster than yourself. This is something to keep in mind, by the way, while you're in the middle of this retreat. It's almost, I'd say it pretty much is impossible to understand your process while you're in the middle of it. To assess, oh, this is happening, so this means that. Because you're in the middle of it and you don't have that perspective. That's why it's good to check in with somebody to you know, get a little bit of reality check and somebody who's not in, the, in that, that, that stew of experience um, can, can understand and, and help support your, your journey. And in that, if you can let go of figuring out where you are Every moment counts. Every single moment counts. That's the beauty of this process. When things are difficult, they have gifts in them. When they're wonderful, and maybe there's some people here saying, oh, he's talking about all this hard stuff. I'm having a great time. Okay, wonderful. Enjoy it. Don't miss it. Let it be a source of faith and inspiration. It will probably change, but enjoy it while it's here. It's not about getting to any one place. It's about being here for the whole ride. And the way it often works is we can enjoy the beautiful, inspiring moments and let them touch us deeply, but often it's the hard stuff that deepens us. Not that you want to wish that on somebody, but that it has its own gifts. In a, a very wonderful teaching, the Buddha talks about how suffering can be the causative factor for faith. In this great teaching, transcendental dependent arising. Mm. 
suffering can be the causative factor for faith. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy. Joy can lead to happiness and contentment and equanimity, all the way to freedom. Suffering can lead to faith. Let me ask, how many people have come to the Dharma out of wanting to get answers to their suffering? Look around. That's how it works. Isn't that interesting? That's why the Buddha started off, he's saying, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Because if you're willing to take a look and understand and come to terms with suffering, you can open up to a tremendous faith and liberation. And that's what That's what this process is about. It's the hero's journey. You know, where e- every hero, all the, the great heroic archetypal figures, all the even action movies and all kinds of movies and novels, they're all about somebody going through their trials and, and tribulations and coming out triumphant at the end. That's the way it works. So if you're in this game to grow, if you're in this game to wake up, which I, I really believe everyone here is, if you're in, in this to wake up, then every moment counts. This is uh, Helen Keller. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. All the world is full of suffering. It is also full of overcoming. So, here we are in this process of awakening. Here's a a good analogy that that I love that um, uh, first heard from Joseph. At the beginning of practice, just imagine a ball on a hill placed right in the center. Very easily knocked off its center. (laughs) A steep hill. That's the beginning of practice where you can get knocked off your center very easily. As you keep on practicing, there's a kind of flattening of that hill. You might put it right on the center, and it takes a gust of wind to move it. As you deepen your practice, there's a valley, and the ball naturally rests in the center. It might get blown off, but this is where it comes back to. I love that analogy. Because that's what we're cultivating, more and more coming into our center, connecting with that place of home that can be here in any circumstances. And the more and more we develop that in ourselves, the more it's available to us. It's been there all along saying, hey, pay attention to me. And this is just kind of getting through the obscurations that keep us from accessing it. So, 
How does it happen that humility leads to confidence? First, we have to be willing to be with our experience. This takes courage. It really does. And I, and I want to um, genuinely acknowledge the courage that every one of you have. You're still here, right? And it's four days into the retreat. to really just open up to the whole show. It, and it requires, this is, this is why we create a center like this and create and bring a, and, and have us agree to the precepts and, and refuges because it takes, often it takes a, a kind of safety for, for us to be willing to open up to everything. And so what, what, we do is create as best a safe refuge as we can for for you to just really open up to it all and to be supported in that. But still, it's hard. The willingness to open up to it all. This is favorite poet of mine, Dana Falls, allow. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. That willingness to allow, it's like you're letting down your armor and saying, okay, let's see it. Let's be here for it. That's a a, a profound shift in how we usually encounter or work with the, the hard stuff in our lives, at least on a conscious level. Last year, my, my son, Adam, who's... Uh, now 24, um, and really into practice. He's, he's, he's good. He's really good. And he, he did this uh, self-retreat. Um, no, it wasn't a self-retreat last year. He just finished a self-retreat this year. But it was a month-long uh, retreat. And at the end of uh, the retreat, we, we spoke. And he said, so, Ad, what, what was this retreat about? Any idea yet? This is week or so after. And he said, I think, uh, I think it was mainly about fearlessness. I said, oh yeah? Wow, what'd you learn about fearlessness? And he said, I think I'm getting the path to fearlessness is vulnerability. 
I love that line. I've been using it a lot ever since. The path to fearlessness is vulnerability. That if you are somehow willing to let down your armor and just let yourself be touched in there and see what's going on, then there's something beautiful that can shine through that wouldn't normally if the armor is up. And in that, you see that you survive. You see that you have the resources and the inner strength to actually make it through. You see the resilience. You see the, the courage. You see the clarity and the strength that's there. So that's the first thing, being willing to be here for the experience and allow. Don't have to do it all at once. You can do it in chunks. You can do it in a way that allows you to do it so that it feels safe. But like we said, uh, Sally, I think, said this morning, to just kind of be willing to stretch yourself a bit and, and move beyond your comfort zone. That's how you grow. Another factor in this movement from being humbled or humility to confidence is being really honest. Going for the truth. That commitment to waking up. That sincere intention that hopefully you got in touch with at the beginning of the retreat and you've revisited since you've been here. That commitment that somehow you have that you can't pretend is not there. Sometimes you might wish you, you could pretend it's not there. But something is stronger than all your doubts, all your fears that keeps you showing up, that brought you here and makes you keep on opening to the truth. So that love of the truth and honesty along with the courage. Letting go of knowing how you think it is or how you think it should be. Letting go of your ideals, letting go of your ideas. It's a line in the Third Zen Patriarch. Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. or any kind of image that you might have, another Third Zen Patriarch line, to live in the highest realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To really let yourself not be perfect and just be who you are. Letting go of knowing. Letting go of control that you never had. Where you get to that place where you say, I give up. That's a very profound place because the ego is surrendering. I give up. Yeah. And then you can open yourself up to something much more profound that can support you. And then ultimately, letting go of identifying with your experience to see your neuroses are not you. Isn't that comforting? They might be part of your repertoire, 
but they're not who you really are. The awareness of those neuroses is not touched by them. The awareness of your fear is not afraid. The awareness of your insecurity is not insecure. The awareness of your sadness is not sad. It can hold them all. You're learning more and more to be the awareness rather than the story that it's holding. This is where coming into the present, refuge in the present, is really the place of connection and profound protection. Refuge, because fear is about the future, memories are about the past. What's happening right now? Oh, breathing. In, out. Oh, hearing. Oh, stepping. This is where there's refuge. And in that you get in touch with the real refuge, the Buddha that's right inside of you. So, humility leads to confidence. And both come about by seeing through the illusion of self. Humility in the fact that it's out of my control and I can be humbled in a moment and my humanness is all apparent. And confidence, it's not even, oh, I've got it together. It's trusting in the awareness, trusting in something much more profound than you. Trusting that the awareness can meet the moment. Trusting that life is here to support you if you let it. And that leads to a a kind of verified and unshakable faith. A few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, a fellow named Ron, was having uh, a lot of doubts about his practice. He'd been practicing for a decade or for a decade or more. And he said, I don't know. I just kind of space out on retreats. I don't know if anything really is happening. And we would go on this, this theme for a while. And then he, he called me and he said, uh, hey, something really uh, extraordinary happened. Yeah? He said, I had a, I had a heart attack. I said, really? He said, yeah. And uh, they got it under control. But then five days after they got it under control, all of a sudden, things went haywire and the machines were kind of going all over the place and everybody rushed in and said, oh, wow, we've got to save this guy. And when that happened, and I was fully awake for this, he said it was the most amazing thing. All that came to me was just be with the breath. If I die, it's just the next moment. He said, I guess something has happened all these years. I never realized it. This is happening whether you realize it or not. And not only that, as you call forth all the goodness inside, all the wisdom inside, all the love inside that is 
shining through beyond all your confusion. You become an agent of that goodness and love. You become a vehicle, a vessel for that, and it has a profound effect on everybody else in your life. Because it's just wisdom and awareness and love finding itself and awakening itself. So you're not just doing this for yourself. The work that you're doing here, which is so incredibly profound, is a gift that you're giving to everybody in your life and to this planet, which really needs it. So I thank you for all your work. May your confusion dawn as wisdom, as it's said in the Tibetan. May all your times that you're humbled lead to a deeper confidence and trust and connection to your true nature. So that's it for me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.